Italian Wine Podcast. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People. This is the Italian Wine Podcast. My name is Monty Walden. Today's guest is Stephen Spurrier, the wine trade's quintessential Englishman. Stephen is known as much for the quality of his tailored suits as for his phenomenal ability to taste and judge wines. Stephen, how did your career in the wine trade begin and how long ago was that? Um, my career in the wine trade began in uh, February or March 1964 when I joined Christopher's of um, German Street near St. James's and they maintained they were the oldest wine merchant in England because they said their records had been destroyed in the Great Fire of London. Now you could have gone to Cambridge University. Why did you choose wine? Well, I went to the LSE, so I did go to university. Oh, London School um, of Economics. Yeah, London School of Economics. So you could... I was at a school called Rugby, Rugby School, and um, I found it very boring. And I knew that uh, it would be the same cap and gown and saluting the masters if I went to Cambridge. And I couldn't take any more of that. And I wanted to go to London and grow up. So uh, I told my father I was not taking up my place at Cambridge and I wanted to go to London. And he said, you've got to go to university. I said, sure, I don't mind. Sure, go to university. So he suggested the LSE with his tongue in cheek because he knew I was bad at maths. So I went to the LSE and I had a great time in London. So how did you get into the wine trade after university studies? Well, I joined the London, the London School of Economics Wine Club. I read about wine, um, Alexis Lachine, André Simon, and there were some uh, rather fanciful English wine books with titles like The Wayward Tendrils of the Vine. And I just knew that after the LSE, the wine trade was what I wished to do. And I have to admit, I had private private means, so I was in a position to choose my profession rather than have to have it chosen for me. So you moved to Paris? Well, no, I joined. I was for three years in the London wine trade. And then I bought a property with a big ruin on it in Provence. I was pre-Peter Mail. And my wife and I, the day we got married, 31st of January 1968, we left on the Golden Arrow and became residents of France. And so we lived in Provence on our property trying to rebuild the pro rebuild the ruin for about three years. And that didn't really work out the way we'd hoped. And so I said to my wife, well, we'll go back, to, we'll go to Paris and I'll go back into the wine trade. And so we got to Paris, but there was no wine trade in the structured way there was in London. I don't know why I thought there might be, but there certainly wasn't. And so walking up a little um, street one day on the way to lunch with a friend of mine, we passed a wine shop, and I said, that's my dream, to buy a little wine shop like that. And he dragged me into the shop, and I looked at the shelves, and the owner of the shop, a nice lady, said, may I sell you something? And my friend said, yes, your shop. My friend would like to buy your shop. <laughs> so that's how it all began. As simple as that. Yes, but what was wonderful about it is that the owner of the shop, her husband had died two or three years previously, and he'd been a very good caviste, as we were called, well, as French wine merchant shop owners were called. Although the shop had been on the market for a year or two, she wasn't convinced that a young Englishman could really follow the, the reputation of her of her late husband. And so she hesitated in selling me the shop, even though we'd gone through all the numbers. And I said, well, look, Madame Fouchard, I'll work for you for free for six months. And then after six months, if you find I can honor the memory of your husband, you can sell me the shop, which was brilliant because during those six months, I 
A, learned a lot more French. B, got to know exactly what I wanted to do with the shop. And so when she sold it to me on the 1st of April uh, 1971, I placed an advertisement in the Herald Tribune which said, your wine merchant speaks English. Brilliant. And so basically, Paris, I was in the 8th. It's location, location, location. I was beside all the embassies, IBM, the American banks. I mean, I was the only English-speaking wine merchant in Paris. So it started off pretty well. So the next milestone in your life was the judgment of Paris in 1976. What was that all about? Well, the next milestone in my life was to found L'Académie du Vin, which was the first private wine school in, in, in France, with an American partner called John Winroth, who was the wine correspondent for the Herald Tribune. And it was via l'Académie du Vin, because we were the only English-speaking wine school in Paris, and we had a big tasting room. So California Vintners used to come over with their wines, and Robert Finnegan, who was then the top wine writer in America, he was replaced in 82 or 3 by Robert Parker, and Alexis Bespaloff, who wrote for the New York magazine. We began to be exposed to California wine, which I had never even thought of before. And so my partner in La Catherine du Vin was Patricia Gallagher, who was American, very proud of her country. She took a vacation to California in September 75, came back raving about the quality, and had already pre-selected at least half a dozen wineries we thought we should show to the opinion formers. And then we had the idea that we would, we would hold a tasting. And I said to Patricia, yeah, but we've held a lot of tastings at La Catherine du Vin, but this is different. We need a peg to hang it on. And she said, I've got the peg. 1976 is the bicentennial of the American Declaration of Independence. And I said, well, we British don't really celebrate having lost the colonies, but I'll go along with that. So that was the peg. So we had, we had the theme, we had the peg. Then we got the judges, who are the nine best palates in France, Aubert de Vilaine from the Romilly County, Pierre Tarry from Chateau-Chiscourt, Jean-Claude Frignard from Taillevent, and really a top panel. And I went with my wife to California to make a final selection. The wines came over, luckily, with a group of 22 people who were on a wine and tennis tour uh, with Andrei Chelichev, the great Russian enologue. And they brought the wines over. Otherwise, I probably couldn't have gotten the wines into France. And only about two weeks before the tasting happened, it was not going to be blind. It was just going to be showing six Chardonnays in California and six Cabernets from California to the opinion formers, did I realize that of the nine judges, only one, Herbert de Vilaine, who was married to a girl from San Francisco, would have ever tasted California wine before. And so even with the best will in the world, the judges, knowing that California was on America's west coast, somewhere north of Mexico, they might have thought of it like southern Spain or southern Italy. And I might not have got the recognition for the quality of California wines that I was after. And so I told Patricia, I said, look, we've got to change it into a blind tasting. I said, I'm going to put the top red Bordeaux, the top white Burgundies up against these. We'll serve them blind and we'll see what happens. So France versus California. France versus California. And so I chose for the red wines, uh, Aubryon 70, Mouton 70, Level Lascaz 71 and Moreau 70, all very high in Cabernet Sauvignon. And for the whites, we had Bata Morache 73, Pulinelle Pucelle 73, no, 72, Merceau Charme 73, and Bonclair de Mousse 73. So top, 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 top. And the order of serving was drawn out of a hat. Even I didn't know what the order of serving was. And when the judges turned up and when they were seated, ready to start, I said, you've come to taste California wines. And I thought it would be instructive to taste them against French wines. And I'd like to do it blind, but I need you to agree. Bien sûr, they said, but a problem. And the rest is history. So who won? We did the whites first, and I can tell you, 
six judges put Chateau Madeleine first, and three judges put put Chalon first. My bet was on Chalon for the whites and Ridge for the reds. So they were all California wines that, that, yeah, that yeah, were voted yeah. top. So there was no question where it went on the whites, because it took a little time to clear up the whites before the reds were served. They handed in, they handed in their notes and voting papers, a marking out of 20. And we took all their marks and divided by nine, and Chateau Montalena was three points ahead of Merceau Champ. That was met with surprise, not consternation, surprise, because the California whites were indeed very good. And then the reds were served, and I had the firm impression that they didn't want to make the same mistake twice. They were quite critical of the California wines, which they could sense were Californian. Stag's Leap came top by a whisker because I think they thought it was French. It was made from three-year-old vines, 100% Cabernet Sauvignon, Andre Chelichev had been the advisor. Warren, when he asked, he was a winemaker. But even so, we ran the numbers time and time again, and enough judges put Stag's Leap top to make it valid. So the top red was again a California. The top red was again California, and then there was Mouton, and then Montrose, and then Aubryon, and then Ridge came fifth, and Leva Lascaz came sixth, and the last four wines were Californian. So if you look at the result of the reds, it wasn't so much a victory for California as the whites were, but the California wine was judged to come first, and that was that was, that was what made the press. So that's um, a little bit about your time in France. You're a frequent visitor to Italy. You come to Montalcino, I think, every summer at least. Well, my wife and I lived in France. We moved to France, as I said, in 68. Then we moved to Paris in 1970. We moved back to London as a family in 1982. Uh, but I then continued to commute to Paris because I still had the shop and the various other wine businesses I had. And then I sold everything up in 1988 and came back to London. And um, I'd already written some books and I decided that I wouldn't employ anybody ever again. And I just employ myself. And so I had to turn myself into a wine writer and a wine consultant, which is what I did. And I ran the Harrods Wine Department for about six months, which was a very interesting experience. And that got me back into the swim of the London wine trade. And then I met Sarah Kemp, who was at Decanter and had ambitions for Decanter, which she eventually took over. And she said, you know, at some point, I'd like you to come and write for us. And then when I left my job at Harrods, I said, okay, Sarah, you can start. So basically, from about 1993, it was life at Decanter. And that's been, you know, where I've been. I've done lots of other consulting stuff and lots of other stuff parallel to that. But Decanter's really been the hat that I've been wearing. But to get back to Italy, I'm a good friend of Peter Femfort from Fattoro and Itadi in Chianti and a good friend of the Sesters from Casa di Argiano. So each summer, my wife and I and a few friends spend a week at Itadi and then a week and a bit at Argiano. So sort of pretty much Tuscan bound. And I go to Piedmont whenever I've invited. And I wish I could get to Umbria. I just saw the Lungarotis who said, you haven't been to see us for, since 1982. Um, well, they must have good memories. Yeah. And I was discussing with my wife just a week ago. And I said, you know, I could never go back to live in France. I said that was in the past. We've done that. And living in France, even though we spend a lot of time driving through France to Italy, I said, I, it doesn't appeal to me, but I could live in Italy. Why? I don't speak a word of Italian, but the food's very good because there's so much going on. There's so much going on in Italy. And it's not to say there's nothing going on in France. Absolutely. The contrary, there's a huge amount going on. But I've sort of done that. I'm fascinated by what's going on in Italy, the resurgence of the native grape varieties, the enthusiasm. The fact that the big names, Antinori and Zonin and Frescobaldi and Gaia, remain totally approachable. They remain absolutely 
vigneron, even though they've been doing it for 700 years. Um, so do you, do you think that's a little bit different look, compared to, say, France? To get a, to, to meet the winemaker at Chateau de Tour, you'd have to maybe send 8,000 emails. Yes. Is that, what, is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, I think... At Venexpo, Eric de Rothschild will be at Lafitte, uh, Corinne Metzandopoulos will be at Margot, François Pinot will not be at Latour, and um, Robert de Luxembourg will be at Aubriant. So the owners are there, but it's, yeah, I would think Eric de Rothschild and Corinne Metzandopoulos are really hands-on owners. Um, it's just that I feel there's more going on. There's, there's, there's more going on in Italy. There's, there's, it changes the whole time. I mean, but you think, in a way, the judgment of Paris, the fact that it was seen as a, a victory almost for the sort of riper, warmer style wines, that in some ways also helped create the, the boom in super Tuscans when Tuscan grapes were being blended with, say, Bordeaux grapes. Yes, to imitate think, the California style. And I think anyone talking about super Tuscans now would say. It would not say it was a mistake, but they're not making those kind of wines anymore. Is that and a good I, thing? I think I think Robert Parker had more to do with it than the judgment of Paris. But is that a good thing that the super Tuscan trend, that Frenchification of Italian wine, is now is now calming itself? I think it's a very good thing. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's a very very good thing. When I when I see the Canaiolo and Ginianello um, appearing in Sangiovese rather than Merlot, I'm I'm really happy. I mean, wines, as you know, as well as I do, Monty, have to represent where they're from, a sense of place. And they do that with uh, the original grape varieties. They can do it very well with imported grape varieties, provided the grape variety suits the climate and the terroir. But the, the sense of place is so evident in Italian wine. It's not, it's not evident in Spanish or French wine, but really the individuality. It comes back to the individual expression. I find Italian wines is remarkable. And uh, really in the last 10, 15 years. So you are one of the world's great communicators. Mm. You're a champion of Italian wine of native grape varieties. How does Italy get that very potentially very complex message about its the complexity within its wine across in a simple way that normal people can understand? I think they have to do it by region first. So region because, like to Tuscany, Umbria, yeah, Piemonte. Yeah, yeah, region first, because people who are going to be interested are going to recognize a region. I mean, everyone recognizes Rioja, everyone recognizes Chateauneuf-du-Pape, that sort of thing. So region uh, rather than the myriad of grape varieties? Yes, region rather than myriad of grape varieties. Leave the myriad of grape varieties for the, to be discovered. I, not, I was going to say for the wine nerds, but no, that's wrong. Leave the myriad of grape varieties to be discovered because there's something new every day. I mean, Vermentino, for instance, um, Ian Dagata just told me there were 10 different Vermentinos in Italy. I didn't know that until yesterday. But then I, I was with Ian and, and a group of um, his uh, students up in Friuli tasting red grape varieties I'd never even heard of. The Rufosco. And... Well, not even that, that I had heard of. But there was one whose translation was cut the tongue because it was so Tatalenghi. silly. Yeah, fantastic wines and wines to go with food. Now, that's another thing. You seldom see an Italian drinking wines without food, a glass of Prosecco or a glass of white as an aperitif, but the Italian wines are so meant to go with food. And that, I think, is something which should be stressed as well. It's a marriage. I mean, you don't need to say this wine with that food, but they are the ultimate uh, wines for food. Do you think also the Italian lifestyle is something that could be, is very, consumers find very appealing? They maybe see French wines a little bit stuffy, and Italian wine they see is a little bit more relaxed, a bit more sort of family-oriented? I, th I, I think that's an important point. If you look at Francesco Zonin, you know, he's so dashing, and he's on the back of Decanter magazine, a big photograph of him with this sort of gorgeous, flowing, dark hair. I mean, I think it, 
Italy. Italy's got a strong card to play in the families, how they look and how they dress. It's part of the Italian package. The style. Yeah, style, yeah. Stephen, it's fascinating to talk to you. We could probably spend four days talking <laughs> about your career in wine and everything yeah. that you've given to the wine trade via your words and, and via your books. I'd just like to add one thing is mm-hmm. we're here because I'm giving a tasting in about half an hour's time on English sparkling wine. Okay. And that's something new on the block. I don't think it's ever going to rival, rival Frank Yacotta or but it's something which is pretty brand new and, and everyone is talking about it. So I'm going to be really interested to see how the wines are received. So that's your own estate, isn't it? Well, my own 10 hectare vineyard will be there, yeah. In Dorset, yeah, in, yeah, in yeah, southern in England. Dorset. Great. Yeah. Stephen Spurrier, a legend in, in the history of modern wine. Thanks for coming in. Thank you very much, Monty. Follow us at Italian Wine Podcast on Facebook.